This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, hello. Hope your Thursday is tracking well. How have you gone getting your hands on urea lately? Has it been tricky to source? Because there are a few things which could be causing it. I'm keen to hear your experience. The text is 0448922604. Before 12.30, you'll hear what might be behind some of the supply issues. But if you've had some trouble, let me know. 0448922604. Also, have you ever smelt the back of a dogger's ute? I can't say I have, but that's the smell some WA researchers are going to have to deal with because they're trying to find a really good lure for wild dogs. It's all tied in with research to get better images and more accurate estimates of wild dog numbers in WA. Well, the challenge is that most camera traps end up with a photo of a hind leg or a bum or a tail, and it's really difficult to ID which dog it was. Or if there's a group of dogs, the first dog going past might have gone fast enough to trigger the camera but not have a good photo taken, whereas the dogs behind might get their images collected. You'll hear more about that research before half past 12. First, though, landholders in the Wickapen Narragin area affected by a severe bushfire last February will be interested to hear legal action against Western Power will start next week. But has enough been done to prevent a similar fire happening this summer? You might remember hearing about this fire a few hundred kilometres southeast of Perth. It lasted for about three days. Eight homes were destroyed. More than 50,000 hectares of bush and farmland were burnt and livestock died. Troy Smith's family farms near Narragin, they lost 800 pregnant ewes in that blaze. Yeah, it was a bit of a um, it was a bit of a horrible horrible day. We had a pretty ordinary forecast. Yeah, it was a Sunday, uh, just doing actually kids cricket out at Williams. Yeah, forecast for yeah 40k winds and about 40 degrees. And yeah, got the out there at Williams and the phone started going nuts. And then yeah, looking out to the east, yeah, you could see the big plume of smoke, which was pretty much just north of sort of where we farm. 20 k's sort of east of Narragin. Initially, it just yeah sort of roared right through the through our farm. Yeah, we lost oh, pretty much it just just levelled. It was such an intense fire. It, yeah, levelled all the all the all the trees, all the fences, all the stubbles went up in smoke. Uh, we had oh, 800 pregnant ewes that unfortunately didn't make it. An old shearing shed went up, and yeah, just it basically just just the speed it went right through and pretty much took everything in its in its way. Had um yeah, my worker Brody, his uh wife and family got out real quite quickly because it was heading toward their towards their house and yeah, we managed to save the house but yeah, it was a bit touch and go. A few of the neighbours were um yeah, doing their best to sort of put the trees out that were burning onto the house. So yeah, it was it was pretty Pretty nasty. It sure was. Um, Troy, what about insurance? And did did it manage to cover your losses? Have you had any out of pocket expenses? Uh, look, we we're insured, and like I think everyone in the whole fire, probably not to the levels that we 
Uh, should have been mm. looking back in hindsight. Yep, I yep. think just the value of everything well, has gone up. Like, yeah, your dollar's not going as far these days. But um, so, yes, we're out of pocket, long and short, yeah, long and short of it. But, yeah, we were lucky to get the cover that we had. Um, but, yeah, not probably to the – yeah, what you expect – yeah, not, not what we probably needed to cover every loss, I would have thought. So uh, then you see the news that uh, Western Power is actually being uh, prosecuted, being tamed, taken to court over this, yep. and it's to do with uh, maintenance issues <coughs> and potential breaches um, yep. to, to the Act. I just wonder how you greet that news. Oh, look, we are, I think I think everyone in the whole Wickipen and Narragin sort of areas will be eagerly watching this. Yeah, I sort of saw saw the news last night online that there was a court hearing. So on Tuesday, so yeah, no, I'm I'm really quite interested to see the outcome of it. To be honest, Troy Smith, he farms about twenty kilometres east of Narrage, and we're speaking there with Nadia Mitsopoulos about that big fire which burned through more than eighteen thousand hectares of land in February last year. Is enough being done, do you think, to prevent such devastating fires like that one which ripped through the Wickipen Narragin area last February? I'm keen to get your thoughts as we make our way into spring, get closer to summer. Is enough being done to prevent these fires? 0448922604 is the text line. So the latest update is Western Australia's Building and Energy Regulator has announced it's completed its investigation into that Narragin Wickipen fire. It's taking Western Power to court for alleged breaches of the Electricity Regulations Act. And that's because the fire allegedly started after Western Power's power line conductors clashed. The case is set to be heard in the Narragin Magistrates Court next week. And some other court action is also brewing. Michael Maxwell is a partner with global law firm HFW, which is acting on behalf of 10 claimants. When the time is right, they'll be seeking compensation to cover the difference between losses and what the insurance companies have paid out. The insured losses and the insurers were really good in this instance. So people got a lot of support, but um, as, as can sometimes happen, the, the scope of the uninsured losses really substantial and in fact it's it's higher than the insure the insurance coverage so there's, there's there are people who are really suffering and uh, and you know and so there's a there's a need for that additional compensation to cover those losses can you elaborate as as much as you can on the grounds that you think there may be these farmers potentially entitled to compensation Sure, I, I can talk in general terms. We don't we don't want to interfere sure. with the regulator's job. Of um, course, I, I think we, we take real comfort from the fact that the regulator is taking the action, and has has obviously formed a, a view about breach. In our view, there's a you know we we think that there are design and maintenance failures underpinning that cause that you mentioned, and uh, you know in both a statutory and a common law context. So we think that. The evidence that we would rely on if, if we ultimately needed to would demonstrate that Western Power didn't do all that it should have and could have done in those instances. And that's that's ultimately, notwithstanding the horrific weather on the day, is what caused that fire or at least materially contributed to it. And so those, the, the compensation, if there was to be any, would be covering those uninsured losses? That's right. It's, it, it ends up being a bit of a, um, you know, a complementary effort. So the the bottom line is Western Power, if 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 it is found to breach those things, is is obliged to to put people back in the position they would have been otherwise. And that 
obviously includes insurers who had to pay out for insurance and any uninsured loss that sits alongside that. How much would you be seeking, Michael? Well, it's in the millions and it's oh, okay. substantially more than the insured loss. So, so, And we're very respectful of the process for the regulator. So uh, we knew this was coming. Uh, we didn't know what action the regulator would take, but it's, it's appropriate to let that take run its course. So I've been talking to the claimants as a group of more than 10 and, um, and we believe we're in a very good position, but we haven't approached Western Power yet, of course, because it's important for this regulatory action to effectively work its way through before we um, you know, take any steps ourselves. To let so that legal action run its course first? I think so. At the very least, work out what the, what the key issues are falling out of that. So we're, you know, as, as a minimum, I'm not spinning my wheels on things I don't need to for, the, for my claimants, but also you know, it just leads usually to a more efficient, sensible outcome. That's Michael Maxwell, who's a partner with global law firm HFW, which is acting on behalf of more than 10 claimants seeking compensation to cover the difference between losses and what the insurance insurance companies paid out after that Narragin Wickapen fire. And you also heard, in addition to that, Western Australia's building and energy regulator will take Western Power to court next week in Narragin for alleged breaches of the electricity Regulations Act. 0448922604 is the text line. What do you think about this? Is enough being done to help prevent these bushfires? I'm very keen to hear from you today. Member for the Agricultural Region, Steve Martin, helped fight those fires. His family has a farm just east of Wickapen. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. What's your recollection of the fire, Steve? Uh, afternoon, Michelle. Uh, like Troy, my my memory is of what an awful day it was that Sunday morning. I remember the soil moving uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, "Gee, I hope we don't have a fire." And uh, sure enough, you know, within an hour or two of that, we were fighting a fire. It was a terrible day. Um, my other uh, couple of memories of, was of the amazing response from the locals. Uh, there were a couple of fires in the Corrigan and Wickipan areas that day, and and the response from everyone around the volunteers, the community was it was simply extraordinary uh, and I guess my, my my thoughts that night as I um, sat down after the day was that um, thank goodness nobody lost their life as, as bad as it was and we've heard from Troy and others about the you know the, the extraordinary impact of the fires nobody lost their life which given how how awful that day was that was almost a you know well it was a great result in the end. Yeah, it certainly is a silver lining. Now, Western Power is government-owned, and since then you've been asking questions in Parliament about this. What have you been asking? So almost immediately after the fire, uh, Michelle, I started asking questions in the Parliament on behalf of the community and the farmers involved. And I have to say the response was a little slow, uh, and it's taken... I think I've asked now eight questions over the past nearly 18 months to try and get a response First of all, um, who was responsible? What was the process? What was happening with the investigation? And, and I guess the bit that I'm that I'm now concerned about, and I'll leave the you know the court process to itself. I think that needs to play out. There's, you know, so so we respect that process. But I received an answer um, some months ago about uh, Western Power having identified seventy odd power poles that are in a similar condition and a similar circumstance to the pole that started or. The, the poles and wires that started the fire at Narragin. Now, uh, in the, the release I saw from the government yesterday, it, it wasn't alleged. It said the fire started when Western Power's power line conductors clashed. And Western Power have identified approximately 70 
uh, polls that are in a similar state, not as bad apparently, but I need to know and the community needs to know where they are and have they been fixed. We have another fire season looming in a few short months. Have Western Power done the work on the, on the polls and lines that they've identified uh, that are you know, potentially a risk coming into this season. I know, and landowners will know, Western Power are very strict when it comes to regarding maintenance and replacements of poles on private land. Uh, they need to assure the community that they are at least as strict and as vigilant about their poles and wires coming into this fire season. Who identified those other 70-odd sites of risk, Steve Martin? I believe they were identified as a result of the investigation that took place post Wikipan Narogen. Uh, and we heard that the three worst of those 73 were, were remediated almost immediately. We haven't heard what's happened with the rest. Okay, so have you got any answers from Western Power or from the relevant ministers about what's happening to address them? Uh, no, other than they, they hope it's done by the end of 2023, apparently. Of course, the end of 2023 is already probably six to eight weeks into harvest and, and fires, uh, you know, uh, during harvest would be a disaster. So, so no, I don't. And, and importantly, um, the people most involved, the people who had their properties burnt, have really been kept in the dark over the past 18 months of this investigation. Uh, I believe um, the farmers involved found out about the you know, the proposed court case via the media. Um, so there, there appears to be no great willingness to keep people like Troy and his family engaged in the process to let them know what's coming, to let them know about the investigation that had a, had a huge impact on their, um, on their lives. What's your main concern, Steve Martin? Uh, I want to see and I want an assurance from Western Power that their network is, 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 is completely up to scratch when it comes to avoiding a, a disaster like uh, last February. Now, I know those were extraordinary conditions. It was a very, very bad day, but we get very hot, very windy days in February every single year. Uh, that wasn't, it was a bad day, but it's not unusual. Uh, I need to know the Western Power Network and so do the people of regional Western Australia. They need to know that that network is safe and fit for operation during the heat of our summer. We've had a text from James on 0448922604. He says, we can't just blame Western Power for that fire. Most firefighters out that way are not qualified to control a fire that size. Most are farmer response units. Would you agree with what James has said there, that that a lot of you know pe people in that, that kind of area just aren't able to, to deal with such fires? Uh, respectfully, that's um, rubbish. Uh, the volunteers that I uh, saw on the ground on that day did a wonderful job. Um, there's not a lot you can do on a day like that uh, to try and get in front of a, a fire front. That's that scale. Um, something started that fire, and I think the locals know what it was. So we're talking about this Wikipan Narragin fire and Western Australia's building and energy regulator will take Western Power to court in Narragin next week. Um, but then there's this other court action being taken on behalf of more than 10 claimants. You just heard from the lawyer a moment ago. Steve, what's your, uh, what are your thoughts on that court action with the other 10, more than 10 claimants? I think we heard from the lawyer about the need to respect the due process. Uh, obviously, the outcome of what's happening in Narragin next week will be important to any future uh, legal action. Um, 
my interest is in in seeing that the people who were impacted by that fire uh, come out of this okay. Um, and I'm not, you know, it, it's a huge financial hit, uh, but there there has been a lot of damage done. And if someone is found to be responsible, I do hope that um, the state uh, make that right. Um, we need to keep an eye on this legal process. It'll it'll take a bit of time to work through, and the the ten or more um, people involved in, in that claim will will make a decision. But but I hope uh, at the end of this process, and it's been a very long, slow process, that um, that they come out of this okay. Thank you for your time this afternoon, Steve Martin. He's the member for the agricultural region speaking about the Wikipa Narragin bushfire, which he actually was part of the um, the fighting of that fire back in February last year, but through more than 18,000 hectares of farm and bushland in that area. A few texts coming through on 0448922604, and I'm keen to get your thoughts as well. I wonder if you think enough is being done to prevent devastating fires like that one which ripped through the Narragin Wickpen area last February. One person says it'll be great for those farmers affected if Western Power is forced to compensate some of their losses but farmers also need to be better prepared for fires like what we've seen. DFAS can't and seemingly won't cover all potential fires so it takes time to get equipment on scene. I pity those in Corrigan and Bruce Rock. You can't hold someone liable. Mark at South Stirling says Western Power has lots of original power poles installed in the 60s that are long overdue for replacement on our farm and many more. We only need a catastrophic fire danger today and fires will once again take everything in its path. All these remaining poles need replacing ASAP. That's from Mark at South Stirlings. Um, echoing really those comments from Steve Martin, the member for the agricultural region, who says there's about 70, 73 sites um, which have been identified uh, of a similar kind of risk level to those um, those power poles which clashed and uh, believed to have caused that Wikipen Narragin fire. And he's been asking questions since then around what's being done about those poles and whether they will be, um, well, the problem will be fixed essentially. 0448 922 604. Uh, Gordon also says as far as fire prevention goes in the future, what do they think they're going to, what do they think is going to happen if the live sheep trade ends? There'll be a reduced number of sheep throughout the wheat belt that'll make it very hard to stop a fire with all thing, with all the increased standing stubble and fuel loads. That from Gordon, 0448922604 if you'd like to share your thoughts today. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Have you been struggling to get your hands on urea lately? If so, it may be due to a number of factors. Grain Growers has been busy compiling a fertiliser report and the organisation's advocacy and rural affairs manager, Sean Cole, explains why South Australian farmers have been more affected than others this season. In South Australia, we, we believe that the shortage was going to be probably most acute. We had a bit of a, well, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, uh, probably the rains that were coming didn't quite eventuate in that last burst, but we knew we would be probably on a, a knife edge um, given that we've had much better rainfall than expected. I suppose it was a perfect storm as well going into the season with very 
fairly high prices falling falling fairly rapidly. People um, were reluctant to order ahead of time, and then we've had a lot more rain uh, than the outlook uh, called for. So originally we we're looking at drier or El Nino conditions. Uh, that in fact hasn't eventuated and we've had a lot more rainfall. So we've had 50 to 60 to 70% increase in, in demand in some parts of the country and South Australia in particular probably probably had the largest uplifts um, compared to what people had expected. And the problem is, of course, if people are ordering based on what the coming months are expected to bring and it doesn't bring what is expected, it is then a, a waiting game to, to make up that shortfall. It's not something that can be ordered and delivered super quickly. Yeah, exactly, Selena. I think look, one thing we've got to understand is that the lead times, we import all of our urea now. So we had a, we had a plant in, in Queensland, uh, Gibson Island, uh, that, that shut late last year, produced about 250,000 tonnes to say 300,000 tonnes of urea a year, depending um, on the season. Our total urea demand nationally is about 2 to 2.4 million in, in seasons like this. So we basically procure most of our urea from the Middle East and also um, South Southeast Asia, and that takes eight to ten weeks um, usually to to get here, um, and then you've got the lead times and ordering ahead of that. So you can't. The problem is, you know, once the season turns, especially like this, which is a fairly fairly radical turn in, in the outlook, um, you, you don't really have the time to you know push in a lot of extra urea. Not not sixty seventy percent um, on top of what we're expecting. So yeah, it's a lo- it's a long tail uh, in that supply chain. And I guess one thing as well, I'd like to mention, Slim, is that. Grain growers are doing a lot of work in this area and we've actually got a fertiliser of the future report coming out later this month that kind of um, shows the current state of domestic manufacturing and um, possible solutions for the future to shore up our food security but also hopefully lower the the lower cost of, of urea and other inputs going forward for Australian growers. In the short term, I guess, um, and this is really sort of peak time for demand as well, are growers just going to have to ride it out? Yeah, look, we were we were pretty vocal um, when we saw the problem emerging um, last month and basically imploring growers to look at a plan B if they couldn't get a hold of what they needed. Now, ultimately, in South Australia, any any urea we put on now in most areas, unless you're down down the southeast or um, uh, you know later areas, the window is probably shutting now. Supply urea we're at the very late stage. So, um, from what we've heard, there's been some shipments have come in, but they probably will not you know go to use now. I suppose in South Australia, we might just just edge over line, but. In an ideal scenario, we've, we've got the urea waiting in the shed um, at a reasonable price and we've got the rain to go with it. So I suppose that's where the, a lot of the work that Grain Growers is doing um, with, with this inputs uh, series to put that together and look at how we can improve that going forward so we don't have your potential loss like we have this year by not having the urea in, in the shed. Australia has a few projects coming up for urea, but they're quite some way out. You've got the new riser project there, um, which I think is a project um, development stage, and we've also got up in the Pilbara region, Western Australia, a large plant, uh, I think they're now turning soil on, which is uh, Perdamon. And between those two, uh, we could see ourselves close to sufficient in domestic urea production, but they're quite some way out. So I suppose that's also informed in the report as well. That's, uh, I guess, longer term thinking. With perhaps for next year, what advice would you be giving growers for planning for their ordering for the next time around? We're reluctant to give uh, direct advice, but I suppose this has definitely uh, spoke to a few growers, um, Selena, and you know, growers will be thinking about potentially holding a bit more in the shed. Um, Price-wise, we probably had the perfect storm. Uh, Urea is very much a cash and carry trade, even even for those importing it um, from overseas. So, uh, you know, we do see that prices, natural gas, is the main price driver of uh, urea. Um, price and we can see that that's sort of bottoming or potentially you know bouncing around the bottom so if price say is to stabilize from here I think you know you'll see importers probably holding a bit more uh, to kick off the season and um, growers probably once bitten 
twice shy. So, you know, you'd probably expect that growers uh, might be holding a bit more um, coming to next season. But we could also be, you know, in, in, a, in a drought situation by then as well. So that's, I think that's an individual choice for the grower. But yeah, definitely um, insurance policy will be looked at there, uh, I think, um, depending on the risk profile of, of each grower. Grain Growers Advocacy and Rural Affairs Manager Sean Cole speaking with Selena Green about uh, some of those challenges in getting your hands on urea, particularly for South Australian farmers, but I'm sure it would be a similar instance in Western Australia as well. A few more texts coming in on the topic of how to better prevent bushfires in Western Australia. This conversation kicking off after the news that Western Power will be taken to court next week over those Wickipen Narragin fires, which uh, burnt through, lost eight homes, 18,000 hectares of land and thousands of livestock died as well. A report by the Building and Energy Regulator finding the fire was allegedly started after Western Power's power line conductors clashed. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. if you'd like to join the conversation. Skippy from Cal says power, they should put power underground. They can build tunnels under the Sydney Harbour. So Skippy thinks power should go underground to prevent things like this. Matt says Western Power has the responsibility to advise everyone, including firefighters. The summer is hard enough without the addition of faulty power poles. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. if you'd like to join the conversation today. 20, well, about half past 12, almost on the dot. Uh, Jonathan Beal is with you uh, for some news headlines. Jonathan? Thanks, Michelle. The closure of one of WA's coal-fired power stations will be delayed after the Australian energy market operator warned the state could face a shortfall in electricity supply by 2025. The WA government has committed to phasing out coal-fired power plants by 2030. The Muja 6 plant was due to close in 2024 in October, but that will now be delayed until April 25. A 30-year-old man has pleaded guilty in a WA court to his part in an alleged cross-country drug run. Two Queensland men were arrested on the Nullarbor in June, allegedly with 77 kilograms of cocaine being towed in a trailer. Vincent Ho was charged with helping the men load the trailer in Esperance. He appeared in the Kalgoorlie Magistrates Court today via video link and pleaded guilty to two charges, including possession of prohibited drugs with intent to sell or supply. He's due back in court next month. And Bureau of Statistics figures show Australia's unemployment rate rose to 3.7% in July. Economists were expecting it to increase to 3.6% after it remained steady at 3.5% in June. AMP Deputy Chief Economist Diana Mussina says the Reserve Bank will likely welcome the result as it decides whether to keep interest rates on hold next month. Morning is Michelle at one. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 28 to 1. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. And I've got some good news and bad news for you this afternoon if you're a fan of mangoes. The bad news first, you might be waiting a little longer than usual to get your fresh mango fix. The Darwin season, well, it's a few weeks behind. Growers are busy picking and packing as we speak today but potential changes to the chemicals which are used to get fruit into WA may put the brakes on mangoes hitting your shelves here. The good news though it is early days but things are shaping up to be a strong season for mangoes in Carnarvon. Going by the flowering we should have a very good season. We've got a lot of flowers you know like it's not patchy 
So everyone's going to have a good season the way the flowers are at the moment. I'll keep my fingers crossed that that remains to be the case. You'll get all those details very shortly. And in the meantime, let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is along this afternoon. How are things looking in the Southwest Land Division, Angeline? Good afternoon. Um, well, we have got a firm ridge of high pressure that's developing across the northern and central parts of the southwest land division, but we've still got a weak cold front brushing past the south coast today, so it's maintaining a moist southwesterly flow uh, uh, along the southwest coast. So we're still seeing light showers across much of the lower west, southwest, and along the south coast. Um, inland areas of the southwest land division, it's generally dried up, um, but there's still a fair amount of cloud cover. As that uh, ridge of high pressure becomes the dominant weather pattern over the next few days. We'll uh, return to mostly sunny weather uh, in, going into the weekend, which showers just confined to the south coast and adjacent land areas. Tomorrow, again, we're going to see temperatures uh, drop close to zero through parts of the gold fields and uh, the central weed belt and parts of the Great Southern. So again, frost, morning frost is likely through those areas. Also, uh, with as, as skies become clearer overnight, we might see extensive fog patches over the next uh, next few days going into the weekend. Um, so, um, so yes, uh, there are drier days ahead uh, with that firm ridge of high pressure persisting until Monday at this stage. We may see another weak cold front brush past the southwest coast later Sunday into Monday, and that might bring a few light showers mainly to the south coast again. Uh, the southern parts of the Great Southern might see a light splattering of showers Sunday night into Monday, but rainfall will generally be less than 0.5 millimetres. How are things um, expected to go over the north of the state as well, Angeline? Um, generally dry through the Gascoigne and uh, the eastern parts of the state uh, through the northern gold fields and through the interior. Now, with that ridge of high pressure developing across the south of the state, we are seeing a drier surge head uh, into the Pilbara and the southern parts of the Kimberley. So, fresh and gusty winds in the morning um, and that's leading to some elevated fire dangers, generally high but uh, we're likely to see extreme uh, through the headland area tomorrow. So, fire dangers reaching extreme values tomorrow. Uh, those fresh and gusty uh, east to southeast winds uh, during the mornings, persist until Sunday when the ridge weakens off and moves off to the east. Apart from that, I'm expecting dry, sunny days in the north. Uh, temperatures have been a few degrees warmer and they're likely to stay warmer, about 2 to 6 degrees, so uh, temperatures reaching sort of into the low 30s. Uh, we might see some cooler, slightly cooler air arrive in the north, especially through the Kimberley and the interior on Monday and Tuesday. How about warnings around the state today? So now land warnings I'm expecting. Uh, there are marine wind warnings out. Uh, so there's coastal wind warnings out uh, from the Esperance uh, to the Eucla coast and also from the Gascoigne and the Ninglu coasts today. Thank you very much for that, Angeline Prasad. Uh, from the Bureau of Meteorology, 24 to 1. I'll just quickly run through the rainfall. Not a lot about in the, the state overall, really. A couple of mills in the north. In the southwest for the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, a few totals hitting five. Uh, Shannon and Warpole Forestry both had five millimetres. In the southern coastal region, Monklenup and the Duke had five. And in the central wheat belt, Bullfinch had five. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. 
Western Australian scientists are going to try to find the very best lure for wild dogs. Murdoch University is using a $100,000 grant from the state government to help its researchers find the right lure so they can entice wild dogs, including dingoes, into camera traps. Wildlife biologist Professor Trish Fleming hopes that that'll help them get more accurate estimates of wild dog populations. Well, camera traps are a little device which looks unusual, I guess. They often smell of humans and they make strange noises, possibly behind, um, above our hearing range. Some of them also have a light that is visible to our eyes. And even the ones which don't have a light that's visible to our eyes, it seems like dogs and other predators respond to them. So we know that there are some individuals in the population that are absolutely fine and they get really curious and they approach camera traps, but others will actively avoid them. And sometimes they come close enough to trigger the camera and you can see them literally jumping out their skin and then running the other way. And those are the ones that we do see, but there's plenty that we probably don't see. And if you were to track their footprints along the road, every time there's a camera trap on the track, they'll actually move around that camera track so they're not triggering it, so they're not being detected. So if you are able to create a lure that is more enticing to dingoes and they'll they'll come and you can take a clearer photo of them, what does that allow you to to do and to build when it comes to looking at dog populations? Well, the challenge is that most camera traps end up with a photo of a hind leg or a bum or a tail, and it's really difficult to ID which dog it was. Or if there's a group of dogs, the first dog going past might have gone fast enough to trigger the camera but not have a good photo taken, whereas the dogs behind might get their images collected. And one of the difficulties we have is then identifying which individual dog has triggered the camera and being sure that we are detecting the same individual over time and over space. And we need that kind of information in order to carry out population estimates. So when we look at how many dogs are in an area, it's important that we're not double counting them, if you like, but it's also important that we get an estimate of how many dogs we didn't see. And that's the kind of statistics that we can do if we've got good enough images and sufficiently good quality images to identify individuals. There is a debate uh, in Australia at the moment more broadly around dingo conservation versus dingo control, how agriculture is balanced against conservation. If a more accurate population estimate is created, what does that do when it comes to that, that broader conversation about the place of the dingo in Australia? Well, the challenge we have when we're thinking about pastoral lands is that dingoes and sheep do not mix well. Dingoes love to chase sheep and they'll maul and they'll bring down animals. And it's a pretty horrific um, thing to come across if you've raised animals to find your animals being mauled. And as a consequence of that, pastoralism and I guess we all eat lamb chops and we love our steaks we continue to produce animals in areas then we need to be able to manage the predation threat and that's the duty of care for us if we're going to raise livestock is to make sure that we're giving them a, a reasonable um, living. So if we are managing dingoes across those landscapes to provide 
a healthy, safe environment for livestock, we need to make sure that all the time and efforts that we're investing into that is not going to be wasted. And there's a lot of effort that goes into attempting to control dingo numbers. And the idea behind having more robust numbers means that we will be able to work out whether any of our control actions are effective. I guess on the converse side, um, if we're talking about conservation estate, again, it's important that we know what the population density of dingoes in that landscape is. Again, if we are going to be talking about downstream impacts of having dingoes present as a conservation benefit, we need to be sure that we are estimating the population properly and we know what's happening to that population in terms of all of the management that's happening. There is so many unknowns about this dog, isn't there, really, in terms of, as you say, you know, how many there are, their movements. There's some programs where there's discussion around collaring dingoes to try and get a sense of how far they're travelling, that type of thing. Would you be able to go that far with the data from cameras in terms of tracking an individual dog's movement across the landscape as it turns up on various cameras? It might be quite hard to do that because dingoes are tan and they're quite difficult to distinguish from each other in a closed population. But there are other methods that are probably more appropriate for what you're talking about there. And genetics is come to the rescue for us there. And genetics are showing us that dogs are moving very large distances. So you have litter mates that have moved hundreds of kilometres apart from each other. And that tells us a lot about how they are moving across the landscape. It just gives us a little snippet into the dynamics of the, the animals. The cameras are much better at detecting shorter-term changes and population densities. So there may be some individuals that are distinctively marked enough to be able to track them over time and space. But when I've gone looking at camera trap photos, there's pairs of dogs in groups that could be siblings and they look identical. They've got very similar markings and I wouldn't be that confident from a photo being able to distinguish them, Mm. but genetics can do that. Wildlife biologist Professor Trish Fleming from Murdoch University speaking with Joe Prendergast. Murdoch Uni hopes to have the dog lure developed by the end of next year. 17 to 1 on the country hour. Now, if you're a mango lover here in WA, I don't have good news for you today. Mangoes might be hitting shelves here a lot later than usual because of a proposal to suspend the use of a popular pesticide, dimethoate. You heard on the country hour earlier this week, the APVMA is proposing to suspend the use of this chemical as a post-harvest dip for fruit with an inedible peel, things like mangoes, avocados and melons. Dimethoate is used to treat Queensland fruit fly, so it's not used by growers in Western Australia, but it is a key treatment for producers wanting to send their fruit into WA, which means any change to the use of it could have implications to the amount of fruit coming into WA and the prices you pay once it gets here. Simon Smith is the president of the NT Farmers Association. He expects the ban will go ahead, but he's hoping it might be delayed. The industry understands that this this ban, um, impending ban, Um, is likely to come into force. There's a two-week consultation period that finishes on the 29th of August 
and there'll be submissions from AMIA, from NT Farmers and from others. Really what we're trying to do is hopefully push back the date that the, the ban will come into place. But there's also a, a, a realistic proposition that it won't, that we won't be able to push the ban out. So from the 5th of September, dimethoate will no longer be able to be used for post-harvest treatment, um, which is important in for protocols for access to the markets in South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania. So growers will need to very quickly adjust what they do to find other, there are other protocols, but uh, they're a little bit complex and yeah, understandably, there's some very, very frustrated growers in the room. So I'm aware, Simon Smith, that not everyone listening to this is a mango grower. So is it okay if we just take a step back and explain what this chemical gets used for and why it is suddenly on APVMA's hit list? I'll, I'll note very quickly, Matt, that I'm also not a mango grower, <laughs> but I'll, I'll give you the best version that I can. So dimethoate has been... Uh, if you like, a chemical that's been incredibly popular for use for various, it's a, you know, basically a pesticide. In this case, it's used predominantly as a post-harvest dip to prevent the movement of Queensland fruit fly into areas of Australia that don't have it. And that's pretty much what it is. It's still allowed to be used for other treatments, but I found that a residue level um, in, I think they call it tropical fruits with inedible skin. So it affected avocados as well. And and mangoes. So some testing was done, what they call um, MRL, so maximum residue levels of chemicals were exceeded. Now these residue levels have been changed to be incredibly low and it's actually a product of, a degradation product of dimethoate. So it turns into another product called omethoate. That's what the concern is. And these, there were very minor breaches and not this, they, APVMA are very clear to say that they, they don't feel there's a, any, any major health risk here, but just in, you know, the, mm. for a precautionary approach, they've, um, they've banned the use of this chemical as a dip post-harvest and, you know, other, it's interesting that citrus, which also uses it and has an inedible fruit, um, they didn't detect, um, any high levels within the, the, the eating part of the fruit. So um, citrus was allowed to continue trading. So even though the APVMA is calling for feedback, I get the sense from you, Simon Smith, that industry feels the decision's already been made. Uh, look, uh, it, it's almost a procedural thing, as I think the way industry's seeing it, Matt. They, it, it's really only, I think, strong science that could potentially overturn this. You know, the hardship that the growers will have to go through and, you know, the fact that it was brought in at short notice and things like that, that, of course, great, great stress to growers. But the reality is, yes, it looks like it'll come in. The best option might be that there may, may be a, a few more weeks given just for further consultation or hopefully to sort of an, enable growers to move to different protocols. Mm. But I think growers need to steal themselves for the 5th of September. And, that, and that's my understanding, talking to AMIA, that's what they're accepting, that, that they need to work, that that's the, that's the timeline. So it would seem then that mango growers for this year's harvest will not be able to use this pesticide as a post-harvest dip. So what's the ramification for that for mango growers? So they can look to alternative treatments. So there's opportunities. It really only knocks out the markets of South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania. There's not a lot of fruit that goes to Tasmania quite a bit to WA and that's a concern, a fair, fair number to to South Australia. 
my quick back of the envelope calculation is we might be talking, and I think I've heard figures of between 600,000 and a million trays quoted. I might add a cost of things like vapour heat treatment are available. That would add $10 a tray and, and concern about quality. Other alternative measures take six weeks. The pre-harvest sprays take six weeks to, to before they're, they're effective. So there's a, a, perhaps a four-week lag if they choose to, to go down a, a different path. So there'll be a loss, and it's a loss early in that season of the, the prime that, you know, as you are talking about the other day, that high-value fruit. Mm-hmm. It's not catastrophic, but it certainly will cost some of the growers a, a lot of money. It also a little bit of a worry that if you know, and there's not likely to be a huge crop, but that fruit that can't go to SA and WA needs to go somewhere else. And does that that affect the market somewhere else? Yeah, it means the Sydney term? markets could get flooded, or yeah, it, it ramps I, look, up the need for exports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel for mango growers every year there seems to be something different that that comes at them. Um, yep. The biggest one, losers could be consumers in WA. Well, that's that's very true. Now, there will, you know, there's certainly the growers are, are nimble. They're definitely, a lot of the conversation around last night was around how do we pivot? How do we work to these different protocols? How quickly can we get them in place? What's the capacity in Darwin for vapour heat treatment and those sorts of things? So growers are still going to try and get fruit to WA, but but very true, the consumer, almost certainly in WA and SA, there's, there's not going to be many early mangoes, that's for sure. It's Simon Smith. He's the president of the NT Farmers Association and we're speaking with Matt Brand about that proposed ban of dimethoate, which would have implications on the imports of mangoes into WA from interstate, maybe a delay in fruit on the shelves here in WA. The industry has been given two weeks to provide evidence as to why the product should not be suspended, but it sounds as though from industry it's almost inevitable. It may just be a matter of when. It's 10 to 1 on the country hour. We'll continue to look at mangoes because while this proposed chemical ban is being talked about, at the same time, the mango harvest is getting underway in the top end. We're still a little way off the harvest in Western Australia and you will hear from a grower in the West shortly who's pretty positive about the upcoming season. But right now, Kensington Pride mangoes are being picked and packed by growers like Matt Polisi from Red Rich Fruits in Darwin. Yeah, so we've started our select pick on, on, on a few of the orchards, so ourselves and the growers. So it'll only be those little, you know, coloured, beautiful ripened pieces of fruit ready to go but that officially marks the the start of the season look it's been you know it's going to be a very you know hard year out of darwin the weather as we all know through the winter periods was fairly warm and wet which is not normal you know it's always warm but the little inconsistent rain so it was very hard to get the trees to flower this year so we're probably looking at a 40 percent reduction in crop but that still means there's plenty of good quality Kensington Pride mangoes ready to go. Wow. Are you hearing that elsewhere, that 40% number? Uh, correct, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. look, it was it was a problematic year, like obviously after the big wet and then the warm winter and then, and then this, you know, the unseasonally cold the last few weeks, which has sort of slowed the ripening down. So Darwin doesn't know what to do with itself anymore. It used to just be hot or wet, <laughs> right? <laughs> So, um, yeah, no, look, it's, it, it will be a challenge this year and, you know, it will be, you know, you'll have to send the pickers around and around to, to get the fruit. But, again, there'll still be plenty of good quality Northern Territory-grown Kensington Pride and R2E2 mangoes. On 
pickers. Matt, what's it been like finding people to get the job done? Oh, look, it's the last four years, five years has been a challenge, but we've, we're using the Palm scheme mainly now for pickers. So I know most farms are. So provided you can accommodate them, we're using all the international workforce now. Mm-hmm. And that's been, you know, more secure than the local backpacker market. But look, the good news is we are seeing more travellers and backpackers back in the region. So that is positive as well. So that I think the pressure's starting to ease a little. When are you expecting the NT's mango harvest to peak this year? Uh, I would have said the start of October. Yep. The start to the middle of October. So the season is officially three three weeks later than last year in terms of the peak of volume. So, yeah, probably the first week of October. And as for these early KPs, can you give us a sense on, on where they're heading to and what sort of prices they're fetching in August? Oh. Ah, uh, look, it's, uh, I, I don't like to say this with interest rates and the cost of living, but you're probably going to see them between seventy and ninety dollars for the first ones in the mar- in the wholesale markets on the eastern seaboard. Yeah, uh, which then, which uh, is fairly normal, isn't it, for those first ones of the year? They're they're correct, a bit special. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so look, t- until the end of August, it'll be very sort of minimal amounts, and then every week in September, the volumes will increase. So you'll see the prices ease from first week of September to the end of. September, and then the best value in October. And so in general, how are you feeling about the season? Oh, look, look our, crops are, our crops are looking very good. The quality is excellent on the tree, so I think the eating quality is going to be very good. So, it, look, it will be a challenging season because of the way that the harvest will, will happen, but we're, we're, op- we're pessimistically optimistic. Pessimistically optimistic. That's a new one. That's Matt Polisi. He's from Red Rich Fruits and busy picking and packing mangoes in Darwin's rural area. Chatting there with Matt Bran about the harvest and the season. Obviously, we're going to have to wait and see whether any of those fruit will actually be able to make their way to Western Australia or whether there'll be a delay with that dimethoate review. But regardless, Matt Polisi talking about fruit being down 40% and it sounds like it's pretty much the case right across that region. Back in WA, though, it's a different picture. Mango growers in Carnarvon are really hopeful of a good season with some strong flowering so far, but nerves are building over whether they'll be able to find enough workers to pick come harvest. Carnarvon grower Kevin Burkett says at this stage, it's looking like a strong season ahead. Going by the flowering, we should have a very good season but it's a bit too early to tell. We've got a lot of flowers. And I notice everywhere around the river, we seem to be getting the same sort of flowering on. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, like it's not patchy. So everyone's going to have a good season the way the flowers are at the moment. And how were things last season? Last season was our biggest season ever. Now, I don't know if that was the same for everyone, but we had a very good season last year, except we couldn't pick it all. We ran out of workers at the end. Do you think that's going to be an issue this year? I definitely think it's going to be an issue. Yeah, very concerned. Is that a, a lack of backpackers or what's coming mainly into th- the Mainly the backpackers. We're not seeing them anymore. And the ones who are around are dictating to the growers how much they want and their accommodation and all the rest of it. They want that thrown in. How much do you think you lost out that you weren't able to pick last year? Hard to say, but... It was a considerable amount. We into the Kensington Pride at this stage and it was after the main glut of fruit down in the markets, 
So the fruit was a good price and we just didn't have the people there to get the, the fruit off. It was a bit sad. And in terms of black spot, are you seeing any so far this year? Not at all yet, but we've been on top of it right from the word go. We've been spraying. I haven't heard of anyone having a black spot either. So I hope, I hope it stays away this year. So 2021 was a bad year for that. How much did that impact crops? Oh, that was terrible. That must have really wrecked some people. Uh, we end up changing our spray program when we notice our normal spray wasn't controlling it. And we still lost a heap of fruit, but we actually stopped the, stopped the uh, black spot. That's Carnarvon mango grower Kevin Burkett speaking with Rosemary Murphy, keeping our fingers crossed for a good season out of Carnarvon this year when it comes to mangoes. They usually don't come on until sort of early New Year and um, Kununurra hopefully not too far away at the moment. Three to one on the country hour. At the Mount Barker sale yards this morning, cattle numbers were down about 50 on last week. Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on the sales. Hi Tracy, can you run through the details please? Numbers were down for a small yarding of only 218 good quality cattle this week. Young cattle dominated the yarding with the lightweight yearling steers selling to 334 cents while heavyweight yearling heifers reached 272 cents a kilo. Cows were firm selling to 208 cents and heavy bulls eased making up to 180 cents a kilo. Wiener steers sold from 290 to 310 cents while the wiener heifers made from 220 to 270 cents a kilo. Heavyweight yearling steers sold from 280 to 308 cents and the lighter weights made from 300 to 334 cents a kilo. Yearling heifers fluctuated with quality, selling for 230 to 272 cents for the heavyweights, while the lighter weights made from 234 to 250 cents a kilo. Grind steers gained on quality with weights 500 to 600 kilos, returning 242 cents and grown heifers sold for 220 cents a kilo. Heavy cows made 172 to 208 cents, while the heavy bulls sold from 150 to 180 cents a kilo. A line of cow and calf units sold for $1,350. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much for that, Tracy. It is just a minute away from the news at one o'clock. Now, there have been, well, there are a few fires burning in the north of the state, and we're just being told that one of them near Marble Bar has just reached watch and act alert level. So, if you are in that area around Marble Bar, this is for the Gudabinya community. This uh, bushfire is now at a watch and act alert level. It's south of the Comet Mine and north along the DeGray River in parts of Marble Bar in the Shire of East Pilbara. So there is a possible threat to lives and homes as a fire is approaching in the area and conditions are changing. We're not too sure of road closures at this stage, uh, but do keep listening to ABC local radio because this information is just coming through right now. Uh, this Watch and Act alert has been issued for Goodabinia community in parts of Marble Bar in the Shire of East Pilbara. That is it from me for the Country Hour today. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.